hopefully by now you found your way to Hebrews chapter 10. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to be reading the first 18 verses. First 18 verses. And we have been going through this study now for several months. That is the, the regular practice of this church is to preach through books of the Bible so that we don't skip anything. We don't get to skip anything. Sometimes there are things that we might rather skip if it was just up to us, but we don't do that. God has something to say in his word, and our hope and prayer is that this morning he has something to say to us. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather here, read your word, pray to a God who hears us through Christ, sing praises to your name, give. We thank you, Lord, for the people who are here. We thank you, God, for the testimony that you have given in their hearts and lives about how you have intervened. You have brought to bear truth in their hearts where they now believe the goodness of the gospel and are leaving the things of the world. And we pray that during this time, Lord, you would open up our minds and our hearts to see more of your truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for us and transform us into his image. Lead us, God, to worship him as our sovereign king. He rules over all. He left heaven to come down here and give his life as a sacrifice and ransom for us. How could we not be transformed by that? I pray, God, that during this time, you'll use your word to do that very thing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you here are going to have some sort of idea on what happens inside of a courtroom. 
whether you've been inside of one before or you've watched it live on TV, you know what closing arguments are. Usually there's a lot of time and emphasis that's given to the closing arguments. You know that they've already summarized or they're trying to summarize all the things that have taken place up to that point, all of the things that have been discussed, all the evidences that have been shown to the jury, and now they're trying to leave a final impression on the minds of those who are going to go out and make a decision of some kind or another. Persuade them to see things the way that the lawyer wants them to see them. Over the last several weeks, we've been in a kind of courtroom here in the book of Hebrews, and the writer of this book has been showing us overwhelming evidence during this time that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He is not in competition with it. He's not just one of a couple of options for the people to choose from. He is the only way. That has been what this writer has been again and again beating the drum, that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. As he entered into the world and lived in obedience, he died then in obedience. The regulations that those Jewish people had been given by God long before, all of those laws, they were brought to a close in a sense. Everything pointed to him. He was the fulfillment of those things. In another place, Paul describes the law as a tutor. What does a tutor do? He guides a young mind to the knowledge of the truth. And once that truth has been grasped, does the tutor stick around? Does he stay in that person's life, continue to teach them? No, once the truth is there and grabbed hold of, the tutor goes away. And here, Jesus is the truth, and the tutor of the law has gone away. This has been the argument in the courtroom of Hebrews since the beginning of chapter 5, how Jesus fulfills the things of the law. What I mean mainly by the law, sacrifices, temple, priests, the dealing with sin, that part of the law. That's what he has been dealing with. This is the main substance of this book and here, I'm just going to give you a few sentences here to, as best I can, summarize what he has been teaching us over these last five or six chapters. Jesus Christ is the great high priest who offered up himself once for all. He said that a few times here. Once for all. All that was needed. Jesus has done it. And he did this to make men holy. And Jesus, he entered into the holy places in heaven on our behalf. He is our representative that opens the way for us. And he continues to serve us there in heaven now. That's where he currently is as high priest, bringing us before God as we prepare to be with him forever. That's what he's been teaching us. High priest, work finished, there in heaven for us, pleading on our behalf. We now have access into the place where he has gone into the holy of holies. You and I can go where Jesus now is. And what we've been told is that the law, all those sacrifices, they never accomplished those things. It was a preview, in a sense, of what was to come. It was a preview, a shadow beforehand, to tell us about the full substance that was to be here in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so if everything up to this point has been courtroom evidence, what we have here today in front of us is the closing argument. And he's going to move on after this closing argument is made. In the rest of the book, he's going to give us application. What, therefore, should we do with this information that we have? So application is going to be the last few chapters. But here he summarizes his case that Jesus is all that these people need. He's all that they need. And the Holy Spirit teach us the same thing this morning. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is all that you need. And so when Christ came into the world to accomplish all of this, big picture, sometimes again we lose the big picture. Big picture, what was going on is that God was pursuing the glory of his son. He was bringing honor to his son Jesus. He delights to bring glory to Christ. And through his death and through his resurrection, through his priesthood, his kingship, God is bringing glory to Jesus. But... And bringing glory to Jesus and worship to his name, he's also bringing good to his people. So he is pursuing our joy in what Christ has come to do for us. And that's where I want us to end up today. Understanding that God was pursuing worship for himself. He certainly is. He deserves our praise and our worship and he knows it. But that worship and that delight in him is the place of greatest joy for any person. Your good is wrapped up in God's worship. Those two things are intertwined. They go hand in hand. And so as you are a person who is worshiping the Lord, praising His name, filled with gratitude to Him, that is the place of your greatest joy. Sometimes we don't think that way. We think of God as being some kind of joy thief. He's there to take away all the good stuff in our life, and what do we have left? Oh, no fun anymore. No, God's people delight most of all in holiness. That is where our good is. We love to please our God. We delight in purity, do we not? That's where our joy is to be found. And so everything this morning is the closing argument, and it's a closing argument for our joy. Now, what truths are we being told here that we are to remember in Hebrews chapter 10? What are we being taught here? The first thing that we see here in these verses is that the law did not cleanse us of our sin. It was a reminder of sin. It didn't do away with sin. It actually pointed to the existence of it. And so that continual routine of the priests offering up sacrifices, it served as a reminder that the people's sin was still there. Year after year when they gathered there to deal with their sins, it should have said to them, my sin still remains. It hasn't been cleansed from me permanently. That's the substance of those first three verses. If the sacrifices of bulls and goats could wash away your sin completely, would it stand to reason that the sacrifices would stop? They should. If sin has been dealt with, there's no reason to continue to make sacrifices. When you're sick, what do you do? 
generally you take medicine, at least some of you do. Maybe some of you don't. But when you're sick, you take medicine. And when you're not sick, you stop taking medicine. A cancer patient only takes chemo for as long as he has cancer. But until the cancer is gone, that chemo, what does it do? It serves as a reminder that the cancer is still there. It remains. That's what we're being told about the sacrifices here in the Old Testament. As long as the sacrifices are being made, it's evidence that the sin has not been finally dealt with. It has not been cleansed. It has not been forgiven. The sacrifices themselves, they were ineffective and they could not seal the deal. That's why they continue to be offered. That's why we were told here in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It can't happen. The routine killing of those animals tells man that the problem still remains. It's there. It's right there in front of you year after year. When you gather around that temple and the high priest goes in there to offer just another animal. Their blood doesn't solve it. Doesn't deal with it. I went to the dentist a couple of weeks ago and it was time for my regular x-rays. What is it that x-rays do? They expose the problems, do they not? In our bones, or in this case in my mouth. I wish that the x-rays also fixed the problems that were in there when they took them. But they don't. They just show me that something is wrong in there. They don't fix what's wrong. And this animal blood here was in a similar position. It served as an alert. Warning, sin's still there. Exposing what's down there underneath. Hasn't been dealt with finally. And so these people, when they gathered there at that, on the Day of Atonement, high priest killing that animal outside, going in with its blood, they were alerted to the fact that there is a holy God that they could not yet approach in the holy place. Who could? Only this one man. This one man goes in as a representative for all the people, but I don't get to go in. He goes in on my behalf. When do I get to go in there? in the holy places. Well, as long as they're making those sacrifices, they're telling me that I never get to go in there. I don't get to walk in. Why? Because I'm sinful. My sins have not been finally dealt with so that I can enter in the holy of holies in heaven, not just the one that's down there on earth. Right? That's what those sacrifices were pointing toward. Those animals were never the solution. These people were told that year after year, I still have my sin, in a sense, upon me. And granted, by faith, they would be accepted by God, but not on the basis of those animals. It was on the basis of one that was to come, Jesus. And so here we're told that Jesus has succeeded where the animals failed. He succeeded. He was the perfect offering that was given for mine and your sin. The animals were never intended to be that. A number of times in the Old Testament, in fact, we're told that God is not pleased with those sacrifices. He says it many times. That's what we see here in verse 5. It's a quote from Psalm 40. It says, In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. 
God was not pleased with those animals that were being slain. That's not really what he wanted. They didn't deal with sin. They didn't get down to the heart of the issue. And this isn't the only place where God says something like that. I want to give you another one that maybe you're more familiar with. 1 Samuel chapter 15. God had told Saul through Samuel that he was to kill everything, you know, cleanse everything, and yet he kept some animals aside that looked like they were valuable. He didn't want to kill these animals. Well, maybe we'll just keep those for ourselves. He was supposed to commit everything to destruction, and he did not. And then Samuel shows up, talks to Saul. You know, he hears the bleeding of the sheep in his ear. Like, why am I still hearing sheep out there? Why did you not do what the Lord said to do? And Saul tells him, I was going to make a sacrifice to the Lord with all these animals that we have claimed. And this is what he was told. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. That's what God wants, a heart that obeys. Much more than the sacrifices, especially these sacrifices. They didn't deal with the sin anyway. And so Hebrews here is making it clear that God has already spoken in the Old Testament. He's telling these people that their sacrifices were not his main pursuit. He wants a heart, your heart, my heart, that wants to do what is right on the inside. That's what he's really after. So now we see two things that are wrong. It's not just the animals that don't cleanse from sin. So animal, cry, uh, animal sacrifices don't cleanse from sin. But what do they also not do? They don't fix the heart problem underneath either. So they don't wash away your sins. They don't deal with that at all. They're a preview of what's to come. So God's not pleased with those animal sacrifices. And when those sacrifices are made, they don't go down and change my heart. An animal just gets killed. That's it. I've got a heart problem that needs to be corrected. And that dead animal does nothing about that. There's a constant cycle of sin that is not being dealt with or changed there under the Old Testament law. I sin. My heart wants to sin. Animals are killed that don't wash away my sin. A heart that sins again. More animals are killed. Nothing is changing. Nothing changes. But in that same psalm that's quoted there, we're also told that the voice of Jesus is present. That's him speaking there in that psalm. He says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. He's telling us there's something different about me. I'm the one who obeys. That's my desire and that's my delight. I have come to obey. Where they didn't, Jesus would. And all of those ineffective sacrifices, all of those animals that were killed, they were ineffective, but Jesus is not. And he says, I've come to take a body, willingly offer up that body as the perfect sacrifice for sin. You see how he fulfills everything that those animals failed to do Jesus does not fail. 
Remember again that quote from 1 Samuel. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So Jesus is our representative. He takes care of both of those problems that the animal sacrifices could not solve. That's what we're being told here. The point of that quotation shows us that Jesus has come to accomplish what all of, all of those, think of that, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals died in the Old Testament. Jesus in one sacrifice came to accomplish what they could not. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus is our representative sacrifice and he is our representative obedience he is both wrapped into one. He has made us holy and acceptable, able to enter into and live in the presence of God. That's what we've been dealing with. As we were told last week about the temple and the holy places being opened. It was never about the copies. It was never about the Old Testament tabernacle, never about the Old Testament temple. They represented the way into the true heavenly tabernacle. The real holy of holies where Jesus has gone and is right now as our high priest. That's where he's at. The first man who has gone in there paving the way for me and for you. We can now enter into that place. Because Jesus is our representative sin bearer. And he is our representative righteousness. He stands there in our place and by faith, I am joined to him. When you trust in Jesus Christ, God sees you as connected to what Jesus has done. And everything that he has and everything that he has done becomes yours. You get what is his. But the question then may come, you might ask, but as wonderful as all of that is, and that is wonderful, and if you want a biblical word for what I just described, it is justification. Justification means that I am declared righteous by God because of faith. He sees me because I am so connected to Christ. When he sees me, he sees what Jesus has done. And whatever Jesus has done is imputed into my account and I get what is his. That's justification. But here we might have the question or the concern come to mind, but what about my sinful heart? Is that not still there? Like is the problem of that heart that continues to make sin inside of me, is that not still there? How is that dealt with? How can I get that to change? Because I get it, I'm, I'm dressed in the righteousness that belongs to Jesus. Think about, it's like God has given you new clothes. He's given you a white robe to put on that says, you are now pure, and when I see you, you are pure. So I get that, I'm wearing Jesus' clothes. But what about the reality that's down there underneath those clothes? I want that to change too. Feels like right now, maybe I'm just wearing a costume. As good as that costume is. But that's another thing that Jesus and his death has done for us. So under that old covenant, I already mentioned that those animal sacrifices, they don't take away 
the heart's condition. They don't change the heart. They don't change your will. They don't change your desires. They were skin deep. They didn't wash away sin. They didn't touch what you want to do. That was the old covenant. But Jesus here, we're told, has ushered in the new. And under this new covenant, we are promised that God will also bring about a heart change. He will not only declare you to be righteous, he will actually make you righteous underneath. As men and women look to the Son and trust in him, he will place his will, his desires inside of us. That's what we see there in verse 16. Look there with me, if you will. This is the promise of the new covenant, what the old covenant would not do. We're told there, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. What's he going to do? I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's going to put the will of Jesus on the inside. Back there, what Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. That's his delight. He loves to do the will of God, loves to obey the laws of God, loves to do what is right all the time. And this is God's promise. He will put the will of Jesus inside of his people to to where now they will want to obey and be able to obey. How does he do that? This is another one of the blessings of the new covenant. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples there in the upper room? He made some wonderful promises to those people. He said, when I go away, I'm going to send somebody else. And it's to your advantage that I go away. When I go away, I'm going to send my helper. He's going to convict of righteousness and sin and all of that stuff. What he's saying is, I'm going to put him inside your heart. I am going to come and live with you. Jesus makes the promise, when I go away, I'm going to go and prepare a home for you somewhere else. That's a good promise, isn't it? And we're thankful that he's doing that. But when he went away, he also came to us. He sent his spirit to make a home inside of us. That's a promise of the new covenant. He didn't leave us as orphans, he said. I'm not going to leave you alone. So don't be afraid when I leave you. It's to your advantage. I'm going to send something to live inside of you, to give you new desires, a new want to, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to convict you of sin, to change you, do a mighty work inside of you. That passage that I read a little while ago in Isaiah 35 about the renewal that's coming on the earth, it's not just on the earth. That renewal is taking place on the inside. And that is the work of God's Spirit inside of us. That's a wonderful promise. He has not left us to our own resources. He has not left us to our own devices. He has placed Himself inside of me. Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, takes up residence inside His people and makes us new. That's what's happening here. In the promise of the new covenant, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds by his spirit. Boy, that's good stuff. So we don't just wear the robe with all the filth and the mess down there underneath. And we still got some, don't we? 
but it's being changed. It's being transformed. As we seek the will of God and we obey it, when we're taught the gospel and we follow what it's telling us, the Spirit of God does a work to change us on the inside. When we obey with the heart of Christ, we continue to be cleansed, renewed, transformed from one degree of glory to another, we're told there in 2 Corinthians 3, as we look to Jesus. Something of heaven has come to live inside of us. And the will of Christ is now placed inside of our hearts. And so we're not only robed in what Jesus is, we are indwelt with what Jesus is. And so you are declared righteous, you're called righteous by God. So you have access now to the presence of God, but you're also becoming more righteous. I hope that you have seen over time some of the progress that God has made in you. And sometimes it's slower than we want, is it not? Sometimes we're disappointed with how little progress it seems that we are making. But you should be able to look back to a point prior and see the progress that has been made. Or maybe to have a conversation with somebody who knows you very well and has witnessed some of the change that has taken place in your life and ask them, have you noticed anything in me? Have you seen the work of God in my life at all? And I hope you can find somebody that will encourage you and say, yes, yes. You used to give in to sin over here, but I've watched you become strong along the way. And maybe you've not completely conquered that sin, but you are resisting now where you were not resisting before. And I have watched as you seem to delight in the filthy things of the world before. You weren't much different than the people who lived out there. You didn't make any choices. There didn't seem to be any different from them. But now you do. You love purity. You love holiness. You love the Bible. You love to call upon God in prayer. You love to sing praises to his name. You love to give thanks to him. And none of those things seem to be evident before. We are becoming more righteous. And we are also declared fully righteous. God is making us more fit for heaven. Giving us heavenly tastes. I've heard it said before that your taste buds change every seven years. I don't think that's true. I don't care what anybody tells me. I still like to eat a lot of the same things that I liked to eat before. But, when you say Brussels sprouts? Well, we've started eating Brussels sprouts in the last couple of years. And I think probably we just make them better than what I had tasted them before. You know, it's called like butter and salt, you know. But God is giving us new taste buds so that we love the things of heaven. So when we get there, we're not just completely shocked. Ha, I had no idea. You love pure things here. No, I love pure things now too. God is uprooting sin like a garden that's outside. He's pulling weeds. And he's planting inside of us good things that will bear fruit, not choking out all the fruit. And when he makes it clear to you that there's weeds in the garden, join him in the work and yanking them up to ensure that righteous things will grow. That's the promise of the new covenant. 
And sometimes I'm, I have to admit to you, I'm a little confused at what those people of the Old Covenant lived by. So when I read that David delights in God's Word, I know there's something of the work of his Spirit in his life. I get that. But what we experience here in the New Covenant is something completely new. The indwelling, the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God inside of our hearts that is writing the laws on our minds, writing the laws on our hearts. It's not an external code written on tablets of stone. God has taken it and etched it inside of me. Isn't that good? He's engraven it in my heart where I want to do what God wants me to do. And now I'm promised I actually have the power to resist evil and choose what is good as the Spirit of God is working in me. And you have that promise as well. So that's a product of this new covenant which makes it different from the old one. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent that Spirit to us, to those who love him, to make us holy. Later on in this book, we're going to be told, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's where he's coming from. It's just true. Without holiness, you will not see God. If you do not delight in holy things, you have no promise there. Or if you're not growing in a delight for for holy things, what would you do in heaven? There's a great article written by J.C. Ryle. It says, heaven will be a miserable place for sinners. It's in his book, Holiness, actually. And he says, what would you do there? Who would you sit down next to and have a conversation with? You find out that they love the things of the Lord. What are you going to talk about? It says that their tongues would stick to the roofs of their mouths. There's nothing to say. There's no one to converse with, no one to delight in there in heaven for the sinner, for the unholy But the holy man, he'll pull up a place next to Paul and say, talk to me all day long. You'll want to be in the presence of Jesus. Sin has no place before him. Heaven will be a wonderful place for the man, woman, or child who loves holiness. So that's what Jesus is doing inside of us. He's come to make it to where we can be declared holy but also truly holy in the heart. And that's a fundamental question I think that we need to ask. Well, what's the point of holiness then? What is the point? And maybe I've already touched on it just a little bit here. Why does God want us to be holy? It's so that we can be with Him. That's where He wants us. God has a heart that invites in. He doesn't delight in shutting out. And he has made it possible for that highway, whose name is Jesus, to lead us right to his presence. That is his delight. And that's always been his delight. Ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were thrown out. God has been pursuing man to come back in with him. That's the aim of everything. The enjoyment of God. Mankind was made to live in the presence of God and enjoy him forever. And sin ruined that. But God set out to redeem broken men and renew them. He is the God who saves. And when you look out into the world and you understand this truth, it explains everything that you see. 
It explains the constant flow of bad news that is out there. It explains the wickedness that you witness. Man is seeking to live outside the presence of God, and this is what it looks like. That's what's happening out there. Hell will be the fullness of man's desire to live away from the presence of God. That's what it is. Outer darkness. Heaven is the place where man will be filled with the presence of God and satisfied all day long, every day by it. Psalm 1611 tells us what it's like to live unhindered by our sin with God. The very last verse in that psalm says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so when Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will, all of these things that we've been talking about today in these last few weeks, He was coming to give you unhindered joy in the presence of God forever. That was His pursuit. That was His delight. And so he was accomplishing two sides of the same coin, the ones that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. He was accomplishing the worship of God in that moment, securing our worship for God, but he was also securing our joy, our delight, our satisfaction, our fulfillment forever. God was concerned for that, and he came to accomplish it in his son. And that is about as fundamental as an aim as there is in the creation of this world. That's what God was pursuing when he made this world. His worship and your joy. And again, sin broke all of that and God has fixed it in Jesus. Where he will be worshipped forever again. And there will be people in his presence forever again worshipping him and full of his joy. Nothing will be lacking there. The great hole in man's life is filled by this. The great missing piece. That's what people are after. Fulfillment, right? Satisfaction. The thing that will make me joyful forever. And we're being told here that his name is Jesus. Sin deceives you into believing that you will be happy where it takes you. And Satan, what does he do? He does everything he can to help you to believe that. But Jesus came to deliver you from sin and all the lies and bring you to the place where you will be satisfied, and that is the presence of God. That is where he currently is, and he promises that he will come back and get us to bring us back there with him where he is. And the Spirit of God that he has placed inside of us is the preview of that. In the Spirit of God, we get a taste of and we get those moments, do we not? And they're not unbroken because we still do have sin inside of us. We want unbroken joy. But sin still intervenes from time to time. But in those moments where it's there, and sometimes maybe it's in this place, maybe this is where it happens for you, where you rejoice in the Lord and the congregation of God's people. I'll tell you with me, often it's when I'm, I'm studying and I'm thinking on God's word and I'm just usually all alone. And there's 
something about God that breaks through, and in that moment there's joy, truth, delight, love, gratitude. And then I forget. Heaven will be a place where those things never end. Constant, constant joy. And Jesus has secured that for us. That is the promise. It is the place we see there in verse 17. I will remember their sins no more. That's holiness. Unstained in the presence of God forever. And it does. It sounds too good to be true because you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. Jesus did it all. But it is not too good to be true. It is the truth. And so as you sit there in your jury box this morning, what's the verdict as you hear the closing argument? Will you praise God for the sacrifice of His Son? Will you do it? Will the fullness of the Lord be in your heart? Will the Spirit of God rejoice in what He has done for you? Will you believe that He's done all of these things for you because He loves you for His glory? And for your good. Will you believe that this morning? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together around your word. See the good work of your son, Jesus. See how he has accomplished everything for us out of a heart that delighted to do everything for us. That all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of those animals could not do and were never meant to do. They were always to point forward to one who was to come to redeem us. Once for all, there on the cross, offering up himself. Raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, now at the right hand of the majesty on high. Interceding is our high priest Lord Jesus, we know that you look down from heaven right now and may there be faith in this room to look to you, to love you, to seek to live for you, to do what pleases you. May your love that you have shown us compel us to love other people the way you've loved us. May the forgiveness that you have shown to us be the same heart that we have toward others. May we be different than the world because you live inside of us. And we look forward to the day when you will come back for your people. And we will be with you forever. But until that day, your joy is still promised to us here on earth in a very imperfect place. You have placed something of heaven inside of your people. And we rejoice together. This church gathered here today is a picture of heaven preview. And so, Lord, we close today with gratitude, and we will rejoice in singing a song about the blood of Christ that has washed us clean. May we sing it from our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.